have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to read a passage for us. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And you're going to have to humor me here on something to, you know, because this isn't, again, I'm, I'm getting to know you better, but I still don't know you, so I'm always nervous. And so you're going to help me be comfortable here. One of the things, I've done this before, that um, we always did in the first church that I planted is I'm going to read the scripture and I'm going to say the word of the Lord and you're going to say, thanks be to God. Listen, the word of the Lord. Okay, exactly. exactly. You're going to say it mm, hearty. That'll help me feel comfortable. And it's, it's actually something that the church has done throughout the, it's, it's kind of liturgical, but the church said there's value in doing that. All right. Um, if you don't find it valuable, that's okay. Just humor me, but it'll make me feel a little more at home. So Keep that in mind as we read. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Now Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey, a rich man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, The man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and have followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's try that again. Okay. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay. Let me pray for us real quick. Jesus, this is an amazing passage, um, but I need your help to try to speak it, and I don't feel super prepared. So would you please be present and open my lips and our hearts to hear some really hard things that you might want to say to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Judaism 
and Christianity are very unique religions. Both of them claim, think about this for a second, both Judaism and Christianity claim that it is actually possible to know God. He is intensely personal. You can have a relationship with him. Buddhism doesn't even believe in God. I don't know if you knew that. Buddhism sees that there's a collective consciousness kind of thing out there. And that the way you get in on that is by detaching. So even if you were going to call that collective consciousness thing God, if the very essence of it is detachment, do you think it would have any interest in you or in me whatsoever? No. It's detached. Christianity is very different. Now, Islam has a notion of relationship with God But it's much more like a president or a king or a very important person. You might be able to schedule an appointment with him, okay? And he might listen to what you have to say. He might pay attention to some of those things. But don't. You would never, I don't know if you knew this about Islam, you would never call Allah father. They're like, who do you think you are? Okay? But Christianity, the Bible, claims that God knows you by name. It claims that he has plans for you. It says that he collects tears, your tears, in his bottle. That's Psalm 56. It says that he wants to know you so much that he took on flesh and entered into this world. Christianity claims that God is actually looking for us. And we go, great, that sounds wonderful. But it raises a big question. How on earth do we actually experience that? And this passage today, that's what it's all about. We've got a rich young ruler coming to Jesus. We know that he's rich because all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mention this story. We don't know whether it's millions or billions in modern dollars, but we know that the guy is very, very wealthy. We know that he's young. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that. We don't know whether it's his 20s or maybe his early 30s, but the point is he is a a remarkably young guy for this much money. We also know that he's a leader. Luke tells us that. He's a ruler. And commentators say we're not sure if that means he's a pastor, the ruler of a congregation. That's what they would call their pastor, synagogue leader. Or whether he was a judge, like in a court, the ruler of the courtroom. But you've got this young guy with a lot of wealth who is in a very prestigious position, whether it's a a synagogue or a courtroom, we're not sure. And he's got this very big question. He comes to Jesus and goes, and if anybody ought to know, you would think it's somebody like this who would already know the answer. He goes, how do I do it? How do I inherit eternal life? And he's not asking How do I go to heaven after I die? Jews believe that all you have to do to do that is be Jewish, and God will someday raise you up. So when he says this about eternal life, he's actually asking, how do I experience in a God in a way that is so real, so personal, so potent, that death can't touch it? How can I start to taste that now? And the fact that he's asking that question means he's probably not experiencing it. And Jesus, the text says, looks at him and loves him. Loves him enough to give him a really hard answer. And the guy walks away sad and Jesus says, he missed it. 
he missed out on the kingdom. Now listen, if Jesus is just talking to rich, you know, wealthy young guys who happen to pastor a church or lead a courtroom, okay, do we have anything in common with that? Probably not. But what if Jesus is talking about something that is found in everyone? Because right after this happens, Jesus starts talking about rich people in general. And then the disciples realize that there's an attitude he's describing that's actually found in everyone. And they say, wait, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus doesn't stop them and go, whoa, wait, you you misunderstand me. I'm not talking about everyone. He goes, exactly. In other words... What's in him, the rich young ruler, that we need to root out in us? That's what this passage is about. It's not just about money. It's about something much, much, much bigger than that. Three things we want to look at this morning. First, there's an incredibly common attitude towards God, towards Jesus, towards the Bible. It's how our culture thinks. Second, there is a devastating diagnosis. Jesus looks at the situation and he draws some pretty amazing conclusions. So we're going to see how Jesus thinks. And the third thing, there's two tantalizing clues, rays of hope for how we can think like Jesus. So how the culture thinks, how Jesus thinks, how we can think like Jesus. That's where we're going this morning. But before I start, I want to give you three visual cues to go along with each, one to go with each point, all right? Here's what I mean by this. To give you the first cue, I need to tell you just a little story. My grandfather, who's, who's dead now, was born in 1901, way back. He saw the first plane land in Billings, Montana. I mean, he went through the Great Depression, all of this. So my grandpa, he was old by the time I knew him, and he was, his name was Spencer, He was a lifelong Republican, and his wife, Marjorie, was a lifelong Democrat, and so their votes would always cancel each other out. And any time you'd meet him, he'd always say something, because he knew that it would bug my grandma. He'd be like, you know, you know, Christian, any time you meet a politician and he reaches out to shake your hand, you better put another hand on your wallet. And she'd go, Spence? Okay, because she, you know... And he'd chuckle, ha, ha, ha. So here's the first image for you. I want you to think it's friendly. You're putting your hand out, but you got a hand on that wallet, okay? That's the image. And you're like, what on earth? Trust me, this will make sense in a minute. First image, hand out, but a hand on the wallet. That's the first image. The second image is going to be palms, open palms. And the third image is going to be arms outstretched. Got that? Hand in the wallet, palms up, arms outstretched. Go with each point. Let's look at the first point. Incredibly common attitude, how the culture thinks. Listen, this guy in this story is actually an awful lot like the typical American. Think about this for a second. Does this guy, what's his attitude towards God? Does he believe that God exists? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Okay, what's his attitude towards Jesus? Good teacher. Okay, I'm going to say more on this later in the sermon. But for right now, the guy believes in God. 
He looks at Jesus as a very good teacher. What about the Bible? Do you think he thinks the Bible is God's word? Absolutely, yeah, it is. When Jesus says to him in verse 19, listen, you know the commandments. What's Jesus doing there? He's quoting, do you know what he's quoting? The Ten Commandments. Not all of them, but a good list of them. He's basically going back to the Bible. And this guy's response in verse 20 is like, listen, been doing all that since I was a kid. So he clearly looks at the scripture as God's word. Uh, he, he would probably say, listen, I believe there's a God. I believe Jesus is a great teacher. I believe the Bible is, it's got the words of life in it. I'm trying really hard to live by that. Now listen, when Jesus asked him this question, you know the commandments. He's not actually giving him an answer like saying, oh, well, have you heard about the Ten Commandments? Maybe you should go try to do those. He's actually asking the question to expose him. He knows that the guy's been trying to do those, and he knows that it hasn't been giving him life. Let me give you an illustration. This is from C.S. Lewis, a book called Mere Christianity, and he describes something that's very astute he says, listen, most of us at some point eventually realize that if there's a God, he has a claim on us. There's some things that we probably shouldn't be doing that we need to stop. Um, and there's some things that we probably should be doing that we should probably start. And so we start trying to measure up to God or to the, you know, the universe. Whatever. Like we, we, we try to measure up. And listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, we start doing right things and we start trying not to do wrong things but all the while we are hoping that when the demands have been met the poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with his own life and do what he likes in fact we are very much like an honest man paying his taxes this is how most of us approach God he pays them all right but he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on when he is done. Because we all take our natural selves as a starting point. Now listen, what C.S. Lewis is getting at, most of us think that being good is like paying taxes. We hope that there's enough left over when we're done. Okay, remember what I just said about the visual. This guy believes in God. He's friendly towards him. Okay? But he's also got his hand on his wallet. He misunderstands what God wants. He thinks that God wants his obedience, his goodness. It's like taxes. So he's using the Bible like a handbook. He's going to the Ten Commandments and he's trying to keep them. He's trying to be a good moral person. He's trying to give God his due, obedience. And he's hoping that God will give him his due, blessedness, life. But really what he's doing is the way he's using the Bible is he's trying to earn God's approval. And in that sense, he's actually trying to be his own Messiah. And it's not working. It's empty. He's coming up short. He's not experiencing relationship. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says here. He says, as long as we think this way, like, like, God, like we're giving God taxes... Either one of two things is likely to follow. Either we're going to end up, either we give up 
trying to be good or else we become very unhappy indeed. For make no mistake, if you are really going to try to meet all the demands made on your natural self, you will not have enough left over to live on. The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And your natural self, which is thus being starved and hampered and worried at every turn, will get angrier and angrier. And in the end, you will either give up trying to be good or you will become one of those people who lives for others but is incredibly grumpy about it. You're doing the right thing, but you're miserable. Jesus is saying, I want to show you Yes, you're friendly towards God, but there's something that you're holding back. Your hand is on your wallet. So you look at verse 21. One thing that I want you to do. And remember, Jesus looks at him. He's not saying this because he doesn't like the guy. He's saying it because he does. He loves him. Jesus looks at him and says, one thing you lack. Sell everything. Give it to the poor. Follow me. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, how many of us are going, oh, Lord, please don't say that to me. You know, okay. Just one little thing. Sell everything. Okay. What's going on here? Listen, first of all, it's really important to realize this isn't a sermon on giving. Okay. It's not like the Bible is saying you need to give all, everybody needs to do exactly what this, guy, what, what this guy was called to do. Okay, it may be ungiving for you, but the point is this commandment is not for everyone. It's not a universal commandment. We know that because Jesus meets other rich people and doesn't say this. Okay, he meets Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who we find out later at the end of uh, the book is very, very wealthy. He puts Jesus in his tomb. And when Jesus meets Nicodemus, he never says, hey, by the way, you need to sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me, okay? In Mark chapter 14, a few chapters after this, there's going to be a sinful woman who takes a vase of perfume and breaks it to to anoint Jesus' feet. And the disciples look at it and go, that was worth a year's salary. That could have been used for the poor. And Jesus doesn't go, oh my gosh, what a terrible thing. You should have given all that to the poor. He says, no, this is actually a good thing. She did it for me. So the point here is not that Jesus is anti-money or pro-poor people, just in general. He is doing something to show this guy that here's, here's where your problem is. You have an attitude in you that is spiritually fatal. What Jesus is doing, I think, is tailoring his command just for him. He wants to expose its heart. Now think about this. At its core, what do wealth and riches do for you? They make you self-sufficient. They let you be able to look at something and say, mine. I see that car. I want it. Um, I've got this need. I can take care of it. Um, I want that thing, or I want this, or I don't want to have to be afraid. In other words, whatever you want, the more wealth, the more riches that you have, the more that you can say mine and be in control. Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus says this, if anyone does not renounce everything that he has, he cannot be my disciple. 
Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 35. Listen to this. If anyone would come after me, be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Did you hear that? Whoever will lose his life for my sake and for the gospel. It says the exact same thing in this passage down in verse 29. Here's the universal principle. It's not so much money per se. It's this. If Jesus, I think, is saying, if there is anything more dear to you than me, that will cause you to miss the kingdom. So riches, unless you give it all up for me, unless you say it's yours, all is lost. So this man is friendly towards Jesus. He's a good teacher. But his hands on his wallet when it comes to his money because he has a lot of it. That's an area where he can't give it up. He goes away sad and Jesus says, how difficult for somebody with wealth, hand on the wallet, to enter the kingdom. Now listen, how do we apply this first point? First of all, maybe two things. Number one, what's your attitude about Jesus, just in general? Remember what I said, this is how our culture thinks. Jesus is a good teacher. The Bible is a good handbook, so you can be good. And if you're good enough, God will be satisfied. That makes no sense with this passage. If that's really the way things work, Jesus Jesus ought to be commending this guy, not saying, no, you just missed it. So that's the first thing. What's your attitude? Will you let the scripture speak to your attitude or inform your attitude about what God's actually looking for? That's the first point of application. Here's the second point. Much more personal. Where is your hand on your wallet? See, for some of you, money may not be, you know, if God says, hey, I want your money, you're like, no problem, I don't care about money. But I care about security. Or I care about my family. Or I care about what people think about me. I care about my kids. I've got to be married. Do you see what I'm saying? What's, not what's in your wallet, but where's your hand on your wallet. We live in a culture that loves what God has to say about love and compassion and justice kind of for people in general. But we struggle with what God has to say about sex, about money, about obedience, about discipleship, about commitment. So where are places where Jesus might be asking you to follow him? Where are the places where you're friendly with Jesus, but your hands on your wallet, okay? That's the first point. Now let's think about the second point. There is a devastating diagnosis. How does Jesus actually think about the world? That's what we want to see in this passage. We're already getting glimpses of it already. One of the things you see right off the bat is Jesus is not impressed with morality. Jesus is not impressed with goodness. Jesus seems to think that everything hinges on our attitude towards him, towards Jesus. Do we love him more than anything else? And he says it's really hard for people with wealth, for people with mine, to actually connect with him and enter the kingdom. And his disciples are stunned. 
he reiterates, no, it's really, really hard. Look at verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. We talked about that already. I had a teacher in high school. This is why teachers should not talk. This is why, the, this is why your teachers should not teach the Bible in high school. Because they'll get it wrong. Okay? I had this teacher who's like, no, you know that passage? The Bible's not really saying that. The eye of the needle was a Roman arch. And it was possible for a camel to get down on its knees and go through the arch. So it's not hard, but it's, you know, it's, it's not impossible. It's just hard. No! Because what, I mean, again, this is why your high school English teacher should not be teaching the Bible. Okay? Um, the whole point of the passage is it is impossible. When the disciple, and here's the thing, the disciples, Jesus is talking about rich people, and the disciples go, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, wait, you misunderstood me. He goes, exactly. With, God, with, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The disciples in verse 28 basically say, this is the parenthetical part, crap, have we done enough? <laughs> and, and Peter says, is it Peter? Yeah, Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. And basically, an implication is, is that enough? Look at verse 29 through 30. I'm going to read this part. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, what's going on here? I'm going to make a couple of observations really quick. This is where we really start to glimpse how Jesus sees the world. Four observations. Number one, in order to enter the kingdom, you've got to be willing to lose everything for Jesus' sake. And that's that second visual. You've got to get the hands off the wallet and it's wide open. Whatever you want. That's observation number one. Look at the things that he lists. Verse 29, house, shelter, protection, possessions. Then he lists brothers, sisters, mother, fathers, children, family. In other words, does Jesus think he's more important than your family? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really hard. I can't tell you how many people I've, say, I've heard say, there's no way God wants me to like value him more than my family or my kids. And it's like, yeah, he does, actually. Okay, and that is brutally hard. But, like, we all just need to acknowledge that. Okay, so this is the second, first observation. He, he wants everything. Open palms. Second observation. We are constantly shocked at what God calls us to be willing to lose. God wants us to say no to our sexual desires outside of marriage. yes. Mm-hmm. We're shocked. You mean God doesn't want me to like experience fulfillment and to be happy? Um, no, he, sa he says he's more important than all of these other things. And we find we're shocked because we're Americans. And we can't believe that it's not all about me. Okay. Third observation. The reason 
Jesus is calling this guy to lose everything. It's not like he's getting him some really high bar and they go, I want to see if you can jump over that bar and if you can, then you'll, you'll prove your love to me. He's actually saying, you have to have open palms because this is how the kingdom works. This is the air you breathe in the kingdom. If you're going to survive in my kingdom, you have to be willing to let everything go for the sake of the Father. This is what the kingdom is like. Open palms. Okay? Last observation. Well, actually, this goes with before the last observation, that idea of the open palms. Tim Keller tells an example, and it's really good, so I'm just going to use it, of a woman who was in his church who had been coming for a while. She's not a Christian yet, and she comes up to him one day after the service. He's like, you know, how are you doing processing this? And she goes, this grace thing is terrifying. And he goes, now that's an interesting response when you get somebody that's not a Christian saying grace is terrifying because most of the people think grace sounds too good to be true. And she goes, and he goes, tell me what you mean. And she said this, listen, I have always thought of God kind of like a boss. In other words, I'm like an employee. He's like a boss. He's got certain expectations. But if he's a boss, what that means then is I have like rights in other words, he agrees to give me, he asks me to do a certain thing, and then he agrees to give me something in exchange, like eternal life, okay? But there's a limit to what he can ask me. He can't ask me to go, like, sell my house and, like, leave my family to follow. You see what I'm saying? No, all he can do is ask me about work. The rest of my life is mine. And then she said this, but if God saves us by sheer grace, there's no like, like bargaining agreement here. I didn't earn it. Then that must mean that there's no limit to what he could ask me to do. Now, that's a woman who may not be a Christian yet, but she's understanding the heart of what Christianity is. It is here in this passage. It is really, really hard. Now, here's the fourth observation. Do you see how Jesus cannot possibly be just a good teacher? In other words, what he is saying is everything comes down to your attitude towards me, okay? If he's wrong on this and really, you know, the guy, yeah, you should, should try to be a good person and God will accept you. If, Je if Jesus was wrong on this, he's not a good teacher. He's a terrible teacher. But if Jesus is right... And what really matters is not how good or how bad you are, but your attitude towards Jesus, the willingness to have the open palms. If he is right on that, do you see how there's no way he is just a good teacher? He is the only way. He is so much more than that. He is Messiah. He is God in the flesh. But good teacher is not a category that really, he is a good teacher. But he is beyond a good teacher. He's either a terrible, terrible teacher who needs to be silenced because he's so wrong or he is who he says he is, and he needs to be worshipped. And you don't typically worship a good teacher. See what I'm saying? Okay, those are the observations. How on earth can we possibly live like this? In other words, if all of us are really, you know, we've got some areas where our hands on our wallet, and Jesus is going, no, I want palms open, everything. You don't ever say mine. You always say yours.
Do you feel in the weight? How on earth can we actually do that? And this is where there's two tantalizing glimmers of hope. How we can think like Jesus. Two things. Number one, obey. Number two, gaze. Obey, gaze. Obey, gaze. Number one, obedience. It is very easy to miss this. Listen, the man comes to Jesus. He says, what do I need to do? And Jesus actually tells him something. He tells him what to do. He says, sell everything, give to the poor, follow me. This guy has been obeying up till now the Ten Commandments, but for the wrong reasons. he's, He's trying to earn his way. He's trying to get God's approval. The solution to obeying from the wrong reasons is not to stop obeying. It's to actually keep obeying, but for the right reasons. And what are the right reasons? It's simply for Jesus' sake. Listen, if you go into something and you're like, your hand's on your wallet in some area, and you're like, I know that I, sh- I probably shouldn't, I probably shouldn't be looking at this website, you know. Okay, if all you're doing is trying to combat the things that you should, you know, places where you need to take your hand off your wallet and give that area to Jesus... But you're coming at those saying, I should or I shouldn't or, you know, maybe life will go better. It's still all about you. The only thing that will change your heart is when you actually start going, you know what? I want to do this just for Jesus' sake. If Jesus wants me to to stop doing this or to start doing that, whether I understand it, whether it makes any sense, whether it's costly or not, I want to do it for his sake. If this guy would have said, you know what? This seems utterly foolish, but you want me to sell everything? I'll sell everything because of you, for your sake, for you, Jesus. If you will start to do that, if you will start to put to death some of those places where your hand is on your wallet, you will start to find that something begins to come alive inside of you. Listen to Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and here's how the NIV puts it, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Something starts happening when we say no to ourselves. When we start doing things not because it's duty, not because we should, not because it will benefit us, but simply for Jesus' sake. When we stop trying to save our lives for our sake and start losing our lives for his sake, something inside of us starts to die, the flesh, but something else inside of us starts to come alive. I've seen so many people who say, listen, I struggle with this area. My hand's on my wallet, but I'm not going to do anything until my heart totally changes. They just sit there with a hand on the wallet. And it's like what we actually need to be doing is we need to start going, I'm going to try to obey. I'm going to try to follow. Jesus, help me. Forgive me. Help me. Forgive me. I'm going to try. And the more we do that, we will start to want more and more and more to do things for Jesus' sake. You see what I'm saying? It feeds on itself. So that's the first thing. We need to obey. So where is your hand still on your wallet? What is holding you back from Jesus? The way to get open palms is by opening your palms simply because Jesus asks. You see what I'm saying? Don't just wait for those palms. Like, start opening. Start obeying. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Gaze. Look. Right after this, and I didn't read this portion, 
but there's a curious little story about James and John. Down in verses 35 to 40. If you have your Bibles, you can look there, but you may know the story. James and John, okay, they're two leading disciples. Did you guys ever see the movie, um, oh shoot, what was it? It was uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are old enough, you're like, I remember that, okay. Bill and Ted, not the sharpest tacks in the box, but I can see James and John, and they're talking, you know, they've been with Jesus for three years, and they're thinking about all these great questions they've heard people ask, and all the great answer they've heard, and all of a sudden, one of them, you know, I don't know whether it's Bill or whether it's Ted, but he's like, dude, do you realize the one question nobody's ever asked? Nobody's asked this yet, okay. Nobody's asked to ride shotgun, you know, like with Jesus when he comes into glory. Let's go and ask Jesus to ride shotgun. We're going to get in the front seat, okay, because nobody's asked that. And I can just see Bill and Ted, James and John, they're running, Jesus, can we sit on your right and your left when you come into glory? Okay, and the other disciples, when they hear about this, like, you're what? Talk about your, I mean, hands on the wallet. You want, like, the front seat. Okay, now listen, (laughs) I love it, and this is what hit me about this, is Jesus, he's actually really patient, and he goes, can you, look, this is down in verse, um, verse, I think it's 38, where Jesus said to them, you have no clue what you are asking. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which with, I, which with, with which I am baptized? And they go, yes, we can do it. Okay, what's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about his death, the cup of God's wrath, death on a cross, you know, shame, humiliation. And they're like, yeah, we're with you. And he's like, no, you're not. You're all going to run away. But then he says, listen to this. This is the amazing part. They say, we're able. And Jesus says, the cup that I drink, he goes, no, you're not. But, but the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. They can't, but they will, and they do. We know from the book of Acts and from church tradition that these, you know, Bill and Ted, (laughs) kind of doofs, and they turn into these guys that willingly give up their lives for Jesus. They are night and day. They are different people. By the end of their lives, their palms are wide open, and you go, how did that happen? Okay? Here's the answer, I think. I'm going to give you an example. It's, It's only... Well, let me say it this way. Have you guys seen the movie Fury? Okay, it's a war movie. It's about tanks. It stars, who's it star? It's um, Brad Pitt, War Daddy. This is probably the best war movie. It's tough to watch, but it is good. Okay, I'm going to try not to spoil it for you here. But listen, Brad Pitt is War Daddy. It's probably the best war movie I've ever seen. And he is the last tank standing and he gets orders to go in and hold this crossroads. And so they go in with their tank, and the tank breaks down right in the middle of where the, these, this crossroads. 
And then they find out that there's a platoon of SS soldiers, like the bad guys, like the really baddies, like literally minutes away. And all the guys in his, his tank are just like, the tank's broken. We are dead in the water. We got to grab our stuff and get out of here. And War Daddy says, I'm not going. I got to hold the crossroads or a whole bunch of people are going to die. And everybody stays. They get back in the tank with him. Amazing to see. Now listen, here's my question. What causes people to do that? I think it's only when you realize how much your captain has given for you, for your sake, that you will find your heart start stirring to give yourself for him, for his sake. Listen, James and John, Bill and Ted, they didn't understand it now, but later on I imagine they look back and he said, do you remember the rich young ruler that walked away? And they're like, yeah. And they said, but you know what? There was another rich young ruler that didn't walk away. It was right before the beginning of a, of a much bigger journey. This ruler wasn't just, you know, like a ruler of a church or a courtroom. This was the ruler of the universe. Son of God comes to the Father and says, what shall I do for them to inherit eternal life? And the Father says, hey, we gave them the commandments. And Jesus goes, we know they can't keep them. And the Father says, there's only one thing to do. You've got to give up everything. You've got to give up your place in heaven. You've got to give up your, your glory and take on flesh. You've got to give up your, your honor and take on shame. You've actually got to not just lose your wealth. You've got to lose everything to go down and to stand in their place to hold the crossroads and to actually bear their sin. And that rich young ruler said, I'm in. Arms, palms wide open. His palms were so wide open that they nailed him to the cross. And when you come back to that and say, that is what Jesus did for me, for my sake, you will start to find that you can actually do the things he's calling you to do for his sake. Do you see what I'm saying here? Where's your hand on your wallet? Where is Jesus calling you to open up your palms? Look to Jesus with his arms stretched out, nailed wide to the cross, nailed, nailed wide open to the cross because he loves you so much. That's the thing that'll start to produce life in you. That's what it means to really be a Christian, is to say, I'm giving it for Jesus for his sake. It's all yours because of what you've done for me, for my sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you just help us to see how beautiful and amazing Jesus actually is? He is the ultimate ruler. Um, he never turned away. He went all the way to his death for us. Would you please press that in on our hearts this morning so that we can learn to be poor in all the areas where we're still clinging to? 
Help us to love you and to serve you. We need your help, Jesus. Amen.